Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm James Putzel, and I'm the director of the Crisis States Research Center. Um, I want to welcome you all here on this graduation day at the LSE for an activity that we've organized very quickly, um, Zimbabwe Beyond the Endgame. This is being co-hosted by the Royal Africa Society, the Institute for Public Policy Research, and the International Bar Association, along with ourselves here, uh, the Crisis States Research Center based um, in the Development Studies Institute. Um, before I begin, I'd like to remind you all to, you know, turn, turn that off, yeah? <laughs> now, before I introduce our guests, let me explain why we're here. If I can turn off my own phone. Okay. Zimbabwe is on the verge of collapse. The immediate crisis in the country was precipitated by the refusal of the ZANU-PF government to see through the process of the March elections, the 29th March elections, where the MDC won an, an historic victory, majority in parliament, but in a carefully orchestrated vote that went on for weeks and weeks, um, um, a decision was made which couldn't deny Morgan Svangarai from the MDC a majority of the vote. Um, he won 47.9% to Mugabe's proclaimed 43.2%. But that, in fact, was the beginning of what the regime thought was the end game. That would necessitate a presidential runoff. In the weeks that followed, the Mugabe government launched a campaign of violence against the opposition. Over 100 of their members were killed. Um, there were uh, many thousands displaced, injured, missing, and many people living in fear such that by the time the so-called presidential runoff was to take place on the 27th of June, uh, Morgan Svangarai and the MDC decided to withdraw from the poll, from the contest, on the grounds that it couldn't be fair, on the grounds that there was massive violence in the communities across Zimbabwe. So Mugabe won um, uncontested a sixth term in office. But the government now has no credibility at home, increasingly no credibility across the continent of Africa, and has totally lost its legitimacy in the international community. There's a standoff with um, President Mbeki from South Africa trying to broker a deal, and Morgan Svangarai demanding a stop to the violence and insisting on the involvement of the African Union in the mediation the African Union has called for a government of national unity to be formed. So the big question before us is, can there be a negotiated solution that can avoid the further violence in Zimbabwe and get the country back on a developmental track? Let me say something about the more uh, deeply rooted causes of what's going on, not just the proximate causes. Just a few points. We can only understand the condition of Zimbabwe by seeing the desperate acts of what was once a strong ruling party and its president clinging on to power despite having lost the support of 
major groups within society over eight years ago, and the support of most of those who are needed to invest and develop the country, invest in and develop the country. Over the past eight years, the government has presided over an economic implosion. Between 1999 and 2006, GDP contracted by 30%. Last year, the, the economy contracted by a further 6%. There was a desperate move to try to regain legitimacy by uh, addressing the land hunger of the country in the, among the rural poor that was unresolved after independence in 1980, that involved the seizure of commercial farms, the backbone of the economy, and led to chaos on the ground, where no clear property rights were enforced and no capacity uh, mounted to be able to make those lands productive. Combined with drought, agriculture has suffered a steady decline. Over the past year, maize production fell by 28% and cereals by over 40%, to the point where the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations just uh, announced that over two million Zimbabweans will face hunger in the next couple of months, and by the first quarter of 2009, that will be over five million. Finally, over the past two years, the government, government action has unleashed hyperinflation. This is deadly for the poor, and it's deadly for production. Today, the cost of a loaf of bread is one-third of a teacher's month monthly salary. The failure of the government to come to terms with its creditors and the fact that it faced sanctions, mounting sanctions over the last few years, has led it to the desperate move of trying to cling by, to power by printing currency. Yesterday, the governor of the central bank announced that inflation had hit 2.2 million percent. Independent economists judge that it could be as high as 10 or 15 million percent. Uh, this is an economy in a nosedive. And in fact, if we, look at, if we look at the situation, the regime has tried to stay in power by, um, by printing money um, and establishing a dual economy in which the government has access to subsidized foreign exchange in order to buy off its clients and retain its position. An example of that is that ordinary Zimbabweans are limited now from withdrawing more than what is about the equivalent of 36 pence from their bank account uh, in a day, but soldiers are allowed to withdraw 15 times that amount. What we've seen with, with uh, this hyperinflation has been the wholesale informalization of the economy and, it, and the outright destruction of economic assets. That's really a regime that can be said to be destroying the nation to stay in power. I want to say three things to provoke our speakers. Uh, out of the crisis state's own research on processes of state collapse, there are three propositions I would make in relationship to the situation in Zimbabwe, challenges for the future. Any transitional political arrangement is going to need to include ZANU-PF. There's got to be some soft landing for those who are in power. And in that sense, the US draft uh, Security Council resolution seemed very much misplaced. In a transition, what has to be avoided at all costs 
in the political shakeups that are going to happen is a split either in ZANU-PF or the MDC along Shona and Endebelli lines, lines of antagonism that still exist in the country. And in fact, when political parties implode, uh, political bosses tend to mobilize people along the grounds of ethnicity rather than program. The second thing is that the security forces need to be maintained intact. This is very serious. Morgan Svangerai has said that those really calling the shots are the Joint Operational Command in Zimbabwe today. There needs probably to be some impunity for the worst offenders uh, to allow a transition to, to take place that sees the integrity of the security forces. And finally, with all eyes on political transition, it's entirely unclear what a recovery program would look like, let alone a development vision for the country. And the opposition so far does not have too much of a vision for economic development in the country. An economic recovery plan needs to ease the pain of people but get production going. Agriculture, we can't see a simple restitution of land, but credit has to get to those who need to produce on the land. And there should be some move to, to look towards securing property rights that include the rural poor. A crisis like this is a moment of opportunity as well to solve the land hunger problem. Credit has to get to businesses, and they ought to, that ought to include the businesses that were operational under the ZANU-PF as well as those who were excluded. And finally, the very top figures managing the economy, the Zimbabwe Reserve Bank, uh, clearly need to be replaced but they need to be creative managers of deficit spending who come in and not simple yes-men for stabilization programs prescribed by the international community. Our speakers tonight are eminent authorities uh, who understand far more about Zimbabwe than I do. Let me introduce them all to you and then we'll pass over for, for them each to address the room. We'll have a, a chance for one talk from each of them, a return set of comments, and then an open question and answer period. First of all, uh, Gugu Lentu Moyo from the International Bar Association, who's working on the rule of law in Southern Africa, will talk to us about the latest events, the latest developments in the negotiations. Gugu served as legal advisor to the Associated Newspapers of Zimbabwe, publisher of the Daily News, which was banned in Zimbabwe uh, by the government in 2003. She, she did legal work for the MDC in the 2002 elections, and she's co-editor of the book The Day After Mugabe, which was published last year. Second, Dr. Martin Rupia, uh, who's director of research on Africa for the Center for Security Sector Management at Cranfield University, just newly taken up that, that job. Uh, waiting for his calling card still to come through. Prior to that, he was senior researcher and project manager at the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria, uh, which he had joined in 2003. And previously, he taught at the universities of Zimbabwe uh, at, as a specialist on national security strategy, defense policy, and civil-military relations, amongst many other topics. Uh, Dr. Rupia is a former lieutenant colonel, retired, um, and so he knows what of he speaks when he'll explain to us what's going on with the Joint Operational Command, what, their cons what, what the concerns have to be about, uh, about the military in Zimbabwe, their involvement um, in the economy and the long-term implications of that. 
And finally, Patrick Smith, editor of Africa Confidential. Patrick uh, has edited um, Africa Confidential since 1992. He's a broadcaster and journalist. He's known for expert and in-depth analyses, often on the thornier and more difficult stories, uh, like the arms trade and, and illegal mining and, 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 and that sort of thing. So a courageous journalist. He'll speak about the prospects that Mbeki, the SADAC, and the AU uh, have in being able to broker uh, a transitional uh, government in, in the country. So without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to, to Google. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to say, um, I think many of you would, would uh, know that uh, Professor Walshman Nguyen was uh, supposed to be here. Um, he is the Secretary General of the smaller, what they call the smaller formation of uh, the Movement for Democratic Change. And um, he is involved in uh, the, the, the dialogue that is taking place at the moment. Um, and because uh, of what is happening at, at, at the moment, and I'll explain, he wasn't able to, to leave Zimbabwe. Um, but once we, we knew that he wasn't going to, to be able to, to make it, um, I did try to speak to all the people who were involved uh, in the negotiation process and try and get an accurate picture of what, what it is that they're discussing. And um, so I'm going to try and, and sort of look at my notes and stick to uh, as close as possible to a text which I believe they're, they're discussing at the moment. Um, what basically is going on is that uh, after the African Union meeting, uh, the African Union resolved to support the SADC uh, mediation process. They, they basically said that uh, uh, the parties, um, th that is the Movement for Democratic Change, and, and that is the, the two formations of the Movement for Democratic Change, and ZANU-PF should uh, uh, enter into some kind of dialogue uh, with the view to form a, what they call the Government of National Unity. I think some people have seen the text of the African uh, Union resolution, so they, they specifically refer to a Government of National Unity. They also I think in that text, urge um, both sides to, to, to act on this uh, quickly. They, they say that the mediator, the SADC uh, mediator, President Talon Becky, should try and set up uh, some kind of structure on the ground uh, to facilitate uh, these negotiations and that he should, uh, they say, seize the momentum for a negotiated solution. So it's in that context that uh, since about the 10th of July, uh, the three sides, uh, the movement for democratic change, has two formations, one led by Morgan Tsvangirai, which is the larger part of the MDC, and then you have the, the smaller side of the MDC, which is led by uh, Professor Arthur Mkambara, and of course then you have uh, ZANU-PF on the other side. So um, uh, Talbun Beki's mediation team have been meeting with the three sides, trying to get them to agree on what they call uh, a memorandum of understanding. And that really is uh, setting out the procedures and processes that will guide the dialogue, um, and the, those are their words. What is interesting is that in the preamble, as they, they um, have agreed, I think, it, to, to it, is um, they, they recognize the importance of uh, African institutions in dealing with African uh, problems. And uh, they, they agree to seek uh, you know, solutions through di dialogue under the auspices of the SADC mediation and supported and endorsed by the African Union. So I think that's an important uh, point to, to note about what they've said. They also say that uh, all the parties have an obligation to establish a framework for working together in an inclusive government. 
Um, and then uh, they, they try and deal with uh, some of the details, or at least are trying to deal with some of the, the, the details. Um, they uh, say that they, they are committed to a, a dialogue and um, you know, to resolving Zimbabwe's crisis. And then they have a, a, a list of, of things that they put on the agenda, and I'll come back to the, that agenda later on. Um, but what I think is, is at the moment uh, really the sticking point is the question of who will facilitate uh, the dialogue. Um, I think many of you who, who might have been, who will have been following um, the, the uh, Zimbabwean developments in Zimbabwe will know that uh, in recent weeks, Morgan uh, Tsangarai, in fact for some time now, Morgan Tsangarai has said that he really has lost confidence in uh, President Tawambeki's role as the, the mediator. And so he has really said he, he would prefer it if somebody else was uh, appointed, and if, if not, just somebody else, and, and to the exclusion of Morgan Ta uh, of uh, Tabumbeki, at least somebody to, to help uh, President Tabumbeki. Now, this question was apparently uh, discussed in the African Union meeting. There were some African leaders who, when they met in, in, um, in July, at the beginning of July, uh, put forward this proposal that there ought to be an African Union uh, mediator added to this process. And this was discussed and apparently the African leaders, uh, at when, when they did finally resolved uh, this issue, said that it, was not, uh, it would not be helpful to appoint an additional mediator from the African Union. Um, I, I understand that the argument that prevailed was that um, if they, they wanted the problem resolved uh, you know, soon and, and as soon as possible, and if they appointed an, an additional mediator, it would take time before this person even understood what the issues were and, and, and so on. So they didn't want to prolong this, uh, and, and so they, they felt that um, this was the way to go, uh, to continue supporting the, the SADC uh, mediation process. Um, another thing which, which was, was perhaps not discussed in the African Union meeting, I, I think, is, is uh, some of the parties say that South Africa, the, the government of South Africa is saying, well, fine, yes, you may want to appoint an AU uh, uh, mediator, but who's going to pay for it? Because we're paying for the cost of this one. And once, um, once you add somebody else, uh, the AU doesn't really ha have money, and um, it will probably come from uh, you know, perhaps Europe or the American government, and then ZANU-PF will say, well, you, you're bringing in somebody who's really um, a puppet of the American um, government, so this would be an issue as well. So that, that's something that, that was not discussed in the, the, um, the AU meeting, but I understand that this is the feeling of some of the, the, the people who are negotiating for South Africa. But having said that, um, what is happening at the moment is, is that uh, the, the three sides, uh, the different sides have said this. The um, um, uh, Arthur Mtambara side of the MDC has said, uh, we, we're, we're perfectly happy to accept an African Union mediator. In fact, we won't sign this agreement until uh, the uh, main MDC signs the agreement. So whatever it is that Morgan Tongarang is happy with, uh, we will go along with it. Um, although they, they, they are encouraging him to carry on with, with the President Talmanbeki's uh, mediation process as it is. The uh, Zara PF has said, uh, uh, well, yes, you know, we have no objection either to an African Union uh, uh, mediator, but um, show us the authority for this because the African Union re resolution does not say anything about an additional mediator. They, are, they, they have said that uh, you know, they support the SADC process, and in the SADC process, the mediator is uh, President Tawambeki. Uh, 
So this is why um, I, I think the, uh, uh, yesterday the, the three sides were supposed to sign a memorandum of understanding, but uh, Tsonga said that he was not going to sign anything until uh, Jean Ping, who is the chairperson of the African Union uh, Commission, arrived because he says that uh, he has an assurance from, from Mr. Ping that uh, the AU will appoint somebody else to help Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Mbeki. And of course, uh, Mr. Ping fell ill recently and, and uh, he's expected in, in South Africa tomorrow to speak with the South African government. So he, he basically will, I think, uh, re resolve this issue. It will be, I think, known tomorrow whether or not the African Union intends to appoint another uh, mediator. Of course, I think this, um, if, if he says, uh, you know, the African Union uh, is going to appoint another mediator, perhaps this will be, this will be acceptable and then they can move on from this. But I think that ZANU-PF will, will try and resist it by saying that this is not something that the AU agreed to at all. Um, and uh, of course, if he says that, uh, you know, the AU is not going to appoint a mediator, the question then becomes, Will Morgan Tsongarai sign this memorandum of, of understanding and, and continue with the, the mediation process? He's clearly unhappy with President Tawambeki. He accepts that he, he must go into negotiations, but he feels that uh, um, he, uh, the MDC will, will not get a, a good uh, outcome, will not get a good deal, because he believes that uh, President Tawambeki is uh, partial and in, in, in some respects perhaps has protected uh, Robert Mugabe. So I think this, this is the key question at the moment, which they hope to resolve in, in um, fairly shortly. The other issues which had, had uh, I think, been a matter of contention, such as the violence and so on, they, they, I understand that today they, they agreed on all these issues and all the parties have committed really to, um, to, to stop the violence or, or at least to discourage violence between the, the parties. Um, but uh, the, I think people in the MDC understand that uh, ZANU-PF's real leverage in this whole process is violence. They, the only thing that they can do to force them to negotiations is to keep beating up uh, and uh, um, perhaps killing MDC uh, supporters. So it's, it's unlikely that violence will stop. Um, in fact, many people who have been watching this process remember what happened to, to uh, Zalpu and uh, Joshua Nkomo in the 19... Um, 80s in, in, in Zimbabwe, and they believe that ZANU-PF is, is following the same strategy, that you use violence until the opposition capitulates and uh, really uh, agrees to be subsumed by, by, by ZANU-PF, and, and I think this is what many people fear, so they, um, it, it is for this reason that Morgan Tsangarai is perhaps trying to get a, a mediator who, who, who he believes would apply more pressure uh, to Robert Mugabe, because it, it seems that uh, apart from wanting to reason with Mugabe, uh, so far President Tawambeki hasn't been able to apply any uh, great pressure on him, and is perhaps not willing to, to do so. Um, the the, the uh, memorandum, the, the draft memorandum, I think, uh, at, at the end sort of deals with the question of, of implementation. They say that uh, if they agree, um, then the facilitator, the SADC and the AU will underwrite and guarantee the implementation of, of this agreement. It's not clear what that means, but presumably it would mean that at that point, after an agreement is made, the, the, the regional organizations and um, perhaps the international community would, would uh, find a, a, 
an acceptable set of carrots and sticks to ensure that uh, you know this agreement is complied to by all the sides. Um, what will be interesting for, for many people here, I think, is that uh, the time frame for this dialogue is supposed to be two weeks from the signing of the, the memorandum of understanding. Um, they, in fact, say that the dialogue started on the 10th of, of July, although um, the MDC has, has so far, at least one side of the MDC has so far denied that there's any dialogue. Um, but they, they would, um, they say it started on the 10th of July. And they expect to have concluded all these discussions, found some kind of solution, formed some kind of government and national unity um, within a two-week period. So it, it, it's not going to be a protracted uh, negotiation, or at least that's, that is not envisaged. Um, the other question I think many people will want to know is, is what happens in the meantime? Will Mugabe appoint a cabinet? Will parliament convene? In accordance with the, the uh, memorandum that they're discussing right now, everything will be suspended until um, until the, the parties agree. So uh, Mugabe would only convene parliament if all three sides agreed. Mugabe would only convene, uh, appoint a cabinet if all three sides agreed. So if they agree to go into this negotiation, it means that anything that happens um, in, in terms of forming a government will really be with the agreement of, of, of all three sides. Um, I think we, we perhaps will, will come back to some of the, the sort of more substantive issues, but that's the framework at the moment. Thank you. Mark. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, yeah, I think it is all. Uh, of course, I'd like to thank the four organizers that uh, put this thing together to allow me the opportunity to make some remarks. My role is to look at the role of the Joint Operations Command or the role of the military in politics, try and explain why and how you know, that is. And the way I think I would suggest to proceed is we have to look at two or three areas. First, simply to look at where do you find a Joint Operations Command conceptually operating universally, not necessarily in Zimbabwe, and then uh, to pick it up uh, or pick a point in history, not going too far back, uh, in the Zimbabwean crisis, why and how it explains you know, what is happening now, and then to try and address uh, James's uh, challenge is to, if we are thinking of the way forward, the end game, as this conference is called, how is it that we can look forward finding a soft landing pad for the military in the crisis in Zimbabwe? And so very briefly, the Joint Operations Command is, I think, an instrument that uh, governments and administrations use to enforce law and order where there is no, uh, um, as it were, uh, willing society response to an existing constitutional order. Sometimes you find uh, implementation of a joint operations command, a JOC system, uh, in an area where martial law has been declared or where martial law has been partially declared. So it says uh, a lot about why and how you see a joint operation command system operating. In other words, by implication, it also reflects a failure of the normal law and order system. Now, in Zimbabwe, without going too far, I want to pick up the point where we see an expansion of the role of the military in politics. And the interesting fact is simply to go back to September 2007, when the two parties agreed and created the 
constitutional amendment number 18. A number of important points can be drawn from that constitutional amendment number 18. The first point was that it had demonstrated, not only to ZANU but also to the MDC, that insofar as the voters in Zimbabwe are concerned, they want a coalition arrangement. No one party is going to be able to find enough power and authority to rule. So that's a, the first message. The second was to acknowledge the role of SADC. The negotiations that led to that September 2007 were in fact negotiated by Becky. Third, there was an agreement to remove a number of uh, repressive legislation. Uh, in the audience, we will come back to explaining POSA, the Public Order Security Act, IEPA, uh, you know, access to private, um, you know, etc., and also to remove the, the military in politics. And the understanding at that point, when this was passed by a unanimous vote of both sides, was that there would be a period of allowing a conducive environment to be set. And in fact, the debate then in September was that the elections would be held around June of 2008. But then what happened? This is my second point. So in other words, I see ZANU sometimes as you know, schizophrenic. <laughs> they have two sides to, you know, to the coin. What happened was that by 25 January, straight after the holidays, there was an arbitrary announcement of the elections by 29 March. The opposition said, oh, you must be joking. We need the environment to be set down and a conducive environment to be set in place. Becky flew to Harare. We don't know what he said, but I'm sure we can guess. He tried to prevail upon you know, Harari to say, look, we need to implement what we have agreed. That did not happen. And of course, the first three months of this year, uh, the country was run by the military. There was no political campaigning allowed. There were you know, three people would not get together and say hello, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the ZCTU, the you know, student movement, all the associations were to apply to the police in contradiction to the agreement that had been passed by unanimous vote in September of 2007. Anyway, that's beside the point, but it's important that we take on board the key uh, uh, elements that are emerging in this process. Come the elections of 29 March, what happens? ZANU completely loses control of parliament, loses the presidential vote, which took five weeks to be announced, and loses more than, uh, there were eight, more than 800 seats at the local grassroots level, and the MDC, I think, captured more than 600. And this, many of us, they tended to ignore. So, so there, is, you know, again, is a poll verdict that is demonstrating to say, this is not the way, you know, we want to go. Now, in terms of the reaction after 29 March, the Joint Operation Command then appeared to come into now, this appears to be organized around the nine provinces with representation at each province, but coordinated you know, from the center. It includes everything from intelligence, from the police, from the prison service, the armed forces, civil service, finance ministry, all the elements that we refer to as the security sector. Everybody's involved. And the strategy is quite clearly to reverse the result of 29 March. And hence, in the discussions that are going on now, 
One would like to see, if you take that departure point which I mentioned in September of 2007, where is it we have a clear item on the agenda that refers to the removal of the military from politics? The two points uh, in terms of now looking uh, forward, the first is that there is no military that is apolitical. Every military, including simply saving its own institutional interests, is playing a political game. However, in a democracy, what we are looking for is a military that supports the political processes and also the institutions, and not necessarily uh, be part of political contestation. If they contest political power, then they stop becoming a national institution, and they become part of the military. And that is why we have an interesting case study in which former generals running Botswana, for example, Ian Kama, Mirafe, and other colleagues, have reigned on the military in Zimbabwe to say, what is it that you are doing? If you want to go into politics, then step right into politics. And secondly, we have a comparative case study before us. If one looks at Tanzania, Tanzania, after 1964, instituted one-party state and a military that was very close uh, tied to the political structure. In 1991, Tanzania undertook uh, a commission referendum consultation very wide. Justice Nyalali undertook that consultation. And they took the decision to say, we are going to go multi-party. However, the cells, the branches, the commissars in the armed forces must make a choice. Either they join the political party, fully-fledged, or they remove themselves from the party and they continue to wear uniform. So in comparative terms, what has happened in Zimbabwe, if we are going to go forward, we have examples in Southern Africa that show the way where, as I said, the military cannot be part of political power contestation. Its role has to be to support political institutions, to support the political process, and to support constitutional processes. Final word, do we see the crisis of Zimbabwe in terms of the economy and the regional integration? I think Zimbabwe has also, in terms of economic debate, been the one country that has, in fact, stopped Southern African economic integration. And if we're going to go forward, then we must begin to develop policies and frameworks that, in fact, also speak to consolidating regional integration, not necessarily to simply look at uh, you know, the recovery of the situation in Zimbabwe, but also to go beyond and look at um, you know, as a war. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I just want to pull up a few points um, about the regional and uh, international environment um, with regard to Zimbabwe. Um, I think in, in a sense over the past uh, year or so, Zimbabwe has become a, a mirror uh, in, in which uh, the rest of Africa and indeed the rest of the world see itself reflected. We were talking just before we, we came uh, out here about uh, the uh, piece of theater in the Security Council last Friday. Uh, when um, the Western Alliance, uh, harking really back to a sort of Cold War formation, Britain, France, and the, the US decided that they should uh, lead the charge for uh, arms embargoes, very uh, 
detailed restrictions, travel restrictions on uh, President Mugabe's regime and all the rest of it, and they should charge ahead on the Security Council. And they did so even when uh, what they thought they'd got in terms of an alliance of support at the G8 was clearly beginning to fall apart. And by the beginning of the afternoon, before the vote took place, uh, they got a clear message from the Russians that the Russians uh, had changed their position. Before, the Russians had signed up to some sort of sanctions pack package. But when they saw the, uh, the detail of that sanctions package that was before the uh, Security Council, uh, they decided that they weren't going to, uh, going to vote uh, with, the, with the Western powers. In fact, they were going to veto it. And China, uh, which apparently had previously um, agreed to go out for, um, for a cup of green tea during the vote, um, decided that uh, it would actually be present and it would also veto it. And uh, the worst thing you can have at the Security Council is a double veto because that uh, clearly indicates this is not just an aberration, but this is a major, major schism. Um, and I think it's really instructive to see, see you know, wh why, why that happened. And the other interesting element was that the um, South African representative also decided that the package wasn't going to be helpful. And of course, people are terribly skeptical about what South Africa's done on Zimbabwe and the role of the president and Becky and so forth. But I think in terms of practical diplomacy, if, you're, if you're, you put a package together of measures and you know that the ma main regional power that's actually hosting the negotiations doesn't back your package, and that two of the biggest economic powers in, in, in the world now um, don't back. I can't quite see the point of it. And it, it does seem that there's an awful lot of grandstanding going on on Zimbabwe. And I think this theater that we saw uh, at the Security Council last week is part of that. There is a lot of people coming up with ideas and ways of venting their spleen. Uh, without too much thinking about what, are, what is the practical import of this. How is it actually going to move Zimbabweans forward? And I think a lot of the press coverage, I have to say, um, some of us have uh, lost our way a bit. There's a sort of, there's a knee-jerk reaction to everything that goes on in Zimbabwe, but we don't hear enough of how, um, how we can get, uh, get beyond where we are, how we can actually move forward. And I think uh, that's that, that, that's part of what we're, you know, what we're talking about. Uh, we're in terms of uh, external backing for the, the mediation process. Um, it w now, where, whether, um, I think it really is a moot point, whether at this moment uh, a raft of new sanctions on ZANU uh, and perhaps you know, restrictions stopping ZANU representatives <coughs> traveling from Harare to Johannesburg for talks is the most useful thing that the, uh, the international system should be doing. I, I would actually suggest they should be uh, uh, financing conferences to, uh, within Africa, uh, maybe within Zimbabwe or other parts of Southern Africa, to, uh, to put together some uh, uh, reconstruction uh, programs uh, and some, um, some serious work on, on how Zimbabwe has actually got to be redeveloped after this crisis is over and playing a much more constructive and a much more uh, proactive role in, in, in laying down some carrots. Because at the moment, I think uh, all we're saying really about these talks is that uh, uh, for Zimbabweans, all you're going to get is slightly less pain at the end of this. Um, even, you know, even if we do get this uh, government of national unity at the end of it, uh, uh, which I'll talk about later, but um, all people are just saying, well, there'll be a, you know, there'll be a respite 
from the political chaos. Uh, but there's not going to be much of a respite from the economic chaos, which is the reality most people are living through. Uh, and when I was there to co cover the elections, it was really, um, it was Zanu versus the economy, quite frankly. Uh, and the, the economy won. Um, and and that, that really hasn't changed. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Reserve Bank governor is reduced to arguing whether the rate of inflation is 2.2 million a year or 7.7 .7 million a year. And that's the extent of economic debate in the country at the moment. So I, I think there really has to be a, a, a serious focus on, on, on economic reconstruction and, um, and, and the development program put together by institutions such as the African Development Bank, which is well equipped to do that. It's got, actually got a lot of Zimbabwean economists working for the African Development Bank because it pays a lot, a lot better than uh, jobs inside the country. So they, they've got the means to do it and do it quite fast. And I think uh, if, if uh, certainly the European Union wants to play a constructive role, those are the sorts of things they could be doing and make sure they do that within Africa to, to start off with. But I think, um, Back on the, on the talks and the structure of these talks, um, I, I'm pretty skeptical about governments of national unity having you know, recovered a few. Um, it's, it's a process that's known now after the Kenyan experience as deal democracy. That is, um, you're running a regime, you know you're going to lose the election. So what do you do? You hammer the opposition into the ground, nick the election result, and then, uh, then people say, oh, God, you know, you're not really that legitimate, are you? Um, and then let's, well, okay, we'll negotiate. And uh, it seems then you, you get into a position, okay, we'll cede you a few places, and then after that we'll have a government that gets respectability, because that seems to be where we're going, uh, respectability and legitimacy, and how, how can you possibly give anyone any respite until the government regains legitimacy, until it re-establishes uh, relations with, uh, uh, diplomatically and most importantly with institutions such as the African Development Bank, the uh, European Union, the European Development Bank, World Bank, IMF, and all that, to get some, some fu uh, money in the system to restart things. Um, and and I, I, I think my, my concern about what's going on at the moment would be that a, a lot of the talk reminds me of the sort of talk we had in Kenya. We had weeks and weeks and weeks of talk about jobs and positions and structures and, and, and uh, not much talk about where we were going philosophically, and that might seem, seem a bit of an airy-fairy thing to say, but what I mean is, you know, what is the direction, what is the purpose of this? Is it a transitional regime that is going to be one step to pull Zimbabwe out of this mess, or is it a political stitch-up between a, a political elites to, uh, to share out the jobs um, and uh, move forward, and then sometime in the unspecific future have another election where the opposition have a better chance of winning. And if, if it's that, um, I, I, I really fear that you know, Zimbabwe is not going to get uh, the push it needs to move forward and get out of this. I think a much better route uh, would be, and this comes after talking to many people on the ground there, it's not just something I've invented in uh, Houghton Street, um, is that um, to have a very clear mandate for this, that it, it is very much a transitional regime. And it's, um, uh, there are individuals within the opposition civil society say we should have a transitional regime of national reconciliation. That should be the priority. We have uh, a, a very clear list of reforms, constitutional reforms, legal reforms, uh, 
political reforms, electoral reforms, and of course economic reforms that we agree on, a program that we agree on, and we take two years, three years to implement that, and then we have clean elections. You know, we're, we're up by then. Um, but it's not open-ended, and, and, and then it's not, so it's not just a sort of a, a get-out-of-jail ticket uh, for people who have been doing some pretty unspeakable things in the last few years, but there's a very clear uh, mandate for this regime, and it enables then people to, to work on it and participate fully, make, uh, get the policies through, get them agreed, and at the same time uh, get some, uh, some legitimacy for the new government quickly, and more importantly for most people in the country, uh, re-establish the um, uh, economy, re-establish their role in the economy, get some funding into the country so things can, uh, there's, there's some sort of process of norm normalization. Uh, and then uh, and then have an electoral process. Of course, uh, people, uh, I think, in uh, Simba Makoni's uh, group, um, that's the, the former ZANU finance minister who stood as an independent, was saying, well, that was indeed their argument before the, the runoff in, in June 29th, that there shouldn't be a runoff at all. There should be some sort of transitional regime. And I, I think that would be very much uh, a constructive uh, way, way, way to go. Uh, and I think, you know, there are, Obviously, great, um, great lessons that can be learned from uh, the, the South African experience. But I think the, the one thing that South Africa was lucky with, and I don't think Zimbabwe will be so lucky, is that South Africa's transition from, uh, uh, from apartheid to democracy took place at a time of, actu uh, of economic downturn. I think people forget, I mean, things are not so hot in South Africa these days, but people forget just how bad the economy was at the end of the 80s in South Africa and just how badly uh, that the, the apartheid regime had screwed it up and, and uh, left the incoming regime with a most horrendous foreign debt. Uh, and um, there were a lot of uh, experienced political scientists and economists who said a political uh, transition under those circumstances is just impossible. It's never been done anywhere in the world. If you look at Latin America moving from military rule to democracy and so on, it doesn't work because there can be no dividend to, to, to pay people off, to make people feel better and to get buy-in. Uh, so if it was difficult in South Africa, you had, you had Nelson Mandela, you had, uh, you, know, you had a lot of gold, uh, you had uh, goodwill all over the world. Uh, in, in, in Zimbabwe, you've got Robert Mugabe, you've got 7.7 uh, .7 million percent inflation. And I'm afraid, how, no matter how much the politicians here and maybe in the States bang on about Zimbabwe, I'm afraid once Mugabe's gone or uh, he, he, he takes a lesser role, I think the attention will be off it. Uh, and you know, this is sort of Zimbabwe's chance to get, to get the re resources and get some attention after after there's some sort of deal, then I think the international attention will, will waver and it'll be the next, uh, next issue. Um, so, uh, well, that was a rather gloomy note. I would say um, I think we should really watch this and, 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 and that be very clear at this stage that it, you know, it's not going to be, um, uh, it's not going to be milk and honey. And there really needs to be pressure on some sort of uh, development reconstruction package uh, alongside these political talks. And that's uh, the civil society groups, the opposition, I think, who want this, I think they've got to really turn up the volume on those demands uh, to capture the international imagination now if, if we're going to move forward. Thank you very much. Um, do you want to do you want to go back to comment on each other or start to hear the who, who's in the room and what they have to say? Hmm, the room? 
Let me first call then on uh, uh, Changatai Mupara. Uh, we have a microphone? Um, yeah. Mr. Mutara is a, um, uh, a member of the MDC here in London. Um, not the official representative I know, but I thought maybe you'd like to make a few comments. I want to start by uh, thanking everyone for showing so much interest in. Can you hear me? <laughs> Sorry. I want to first of all thank everyone for showing uh, great interest in uh, our country, Zimbabwe. Uh, ye, as, as you all know, we just finished uh, an election that was by no means uh, legitimate. The rigging was so blatant, those who I have seen the footage of a prison officer who, uh, who uh, filmed the voting at a, a, at a polling station uh, in Harare know, what, uh, know the extent of the rigging. So the government in Zimbabwe is not by any means legitimate, which brings us back to the, elec uh, the elections of the 29th of March, where the MDC won convincingly uh, in Senate, in local elections, and in, parliament, in the parliamentary elections across the country, and Mogin Shangirai won uh, convincingly and, uh, be, and outrightly to have been able to become the president of Zimbabwe as of uh, uh, 29 March. But the results that were then announced were not reflective of the will of the people there was a verification process of the results which was abandoned by the chairperson of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission one and a half days into the process. Now, there has been, since the 29th of March, a lot of violence uh, visited upon members of the opposition uh, and other people who were, who were um, suspected of not supporting the regime in the previous election. The result of that violent process is that they, they are more than, there is between 100 and 500 uh, supporters of the MDC who have been killed. Uh, dead bodies continue turning up. There is over 10,000 people who have been injured. There, there is over 50,000 people who have been displaced. The reality of the situation is that the MDC has been decimated and is not able to function at all in the whole country. As a result of that situation, there can be no scope for forming a government of national unity in the circumstances because you have a political party that, is, that has not been allowed to function for some time and then expect it to unite with the aggressor. That sort of arrangement is nothing other than a violent takeover of one political party by another. Moving on to what we think is the way forward. The, the, the way forward would have to be a situation where the MDC is able to function and participate as a, as a, democratic, uh, as a democratically elected party. They, the international aid organizations must be allowed back into Zimbabwe to provide relief for thousands of people who have been injured and who have become homeless and are destitute 
and refugees in their own, their own countries. The government must release the hundreds of prisoners of conscience that include, among other people, uh, elected members of parliament, elected members of the lower house, and elected members of the local government in both the rural and the, the urban areas. The ordinary people in Zimbabwe must be allowed to go back to their countries, to their homes and live in, in peace. I think the situation where ordinary people live, go to their houses by day and go and sleep in the mountains by night in fear of their government is not a conducive environment to start a negotiating process. The government must also drop the charges of treason against Tendai Those who don't know, Tendai uh, did nothing more than announce the fact that Mokim Shangri had won the elections and that the MDC was doing better than ZANU-PF in that election. And that alone was sufficient to have him charged for treason, a charge which carries a death, a death sentence. After all that is done, it is possible that the MDC may be able to engage with ZANU-PF to talk about a transitional authority leading to a, a free, sorry, a violent free, free and fair election because the whole process at the end of it must be able to produce a legitimate government because one of the serious problems in Zimbabwe is a crisis of legitimacy unless and until that is resolved. The, the post-Mugabe period will not be one of economic prosperity which is all Zimbabweans we uh, we wish to, we wish it to be the order of the day uh, once uh, this is all done and um, and finished with. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> now the floor is open. I think we'll take a round of questions and sort of take note of them, and, uh, and then we'll turn to the panel um, uh, uh, about them. Uh, let me start with the first one. Um, I, Daniel would like to ask you, um, according to Radio's 4 p.m. program, um, the German company supplying banknote paper to Zimbabwe has ceased to do so. What impact will this have on the country, the regime, and the poor? Okay. <coughs> yes, right here back. Um, Mr. Smith, and actually anyone can answer this question, you said something to the effect of civil society has to turn up the volume on their demands, and I'm wondering who you mean specifically by civil society in terms of actors within Zimbabwe and outside. Who, who is it that needs to organize outside the party politics, and, and what should they do, and how can they do it? You have a question up on top? Could you say who you, I'm sorry, I should have said this before. If you could just say who you are and then. My name is Sam, I'm a Zimbabwean. I think the solution for the, about the way forward in Zimbabwe uh, at the moment should be starting from where we failed. And I think the problem has been about lack of institutions of democracy. Um, there has been uh, organizations like in the civic society 
and after someone asked from the floor what civic society would be, I will have to expound what I mean by civic society in Zimbabwe. Talking about uh, organizations like NCA, churches, and um, unions, and so forth. And they have been fighting for a situation where we have got um, these institutions of democracy to be put back in place. And the recent elections that have just passed show us that the, these institutions either need to be reinvigorated or to be established altogether. So uh, the way forward has got to be a transitional authority which is tasked to put this back in place and the civic society which has worked tirelessly to put this back into place must be there and must, must be part of this procedure. Thank you. Yes, my name is Matthew Lockwood from the Institute for Public Policy. Uh, my, question, my question is really about um, the kind of realpolitik of the current situation and the role of the, the, the military. Um, because it seems to me that uh, it's the, the, the Joint Operations Command that hold at the moment the kind of uh, the command of the situation. Um, but presumably their calculations are on the one hand, whether the worsening economic situation makes it more difficult for them to maintain that, that situation, or indeed that their own assets and their own interests are being eroded by that economic, increasing economic chaos. On the other hand, um, they would be concerned about any solution which presumably which uh, threatened their own personal situation and security and possibly also their assets and their interests. So it's really the question which I guess uh, Dr. Rapier didn't fully engage with, which is to what extent will there have to be a soft landing, not necessarily from Mugabe, but the people around him. Okay, let me see. One more up here, in front, and then we'll, we'll have a first round of answers. Thank you. Um, my name is Afiong. I'm, I'm from Moyewa Taifa. It's a Pan-African Women's Solidarity Network. Um, just a few things, um, Chair. Some of the things I thought you forgot to say in terms of identifying the nature of the crisis was the question of land. But some of us as Africans, you know, these things are more central, you know, than some of the issues that the West raises. And, you know, I'd like to hear the comments, you know, from some members of the panel. Um, I've met a lot of MDC people speaking in public and personally, and they've never been able to come up with a policy on land. I think that for us as Africans, that's very central. The question of the... Um, destabilization of the economy. You know, we keep on hearing it's imploding, it's two point something million uh, percent inflation. You see, these things remind some of us who are minded, you know, to reflect on our history as Africans about the situation in Nkrumah's Ghana. When imperialism tried to, you know, dictate the cocoa prices and actually began to collapse the price of cocoa on the international market. And of course, it consequently affects or affects the home government. I'd like to hear some comments, you know, from the floor, or rather from the panel. Mbeki's role and Azania. There's this school of thought, you know, that who, whichever side wins in Zimbabwe will win in South Africa, Azania, South Africa, because they have a more gigantic problem about the land question and the land crisis. It'd be helpful to hear some of your comments. The last speaker touched on, but tried to touch on the real nature of, you know, British interest, economic interest in Zimbabwe. And I think, you know, that the panel has not addressed, you know, that issue. Why have the companies, British companies in Zimbabwe, not pulled out? if the British are so interested in what's happening in Zimbabwe. 
Also, there was a point, you know, that Zimbabwe is a reflection of Africa. I certainly agree about that because uh, some of us as Africans see that struggle going on in Zimbabwe as indeed a reflection. Uh, somebody made a small uh, comment about Mugabe and Mandela, and you know, there was a small reaction from the room. For a lot of us as Africans, Mugabe represents one thing, Mandela represents another thing. Mandela's name has become as popular, even more popular than Coca-Cola, okay? It's an international brand which has been held by the West. As Africans, we have to ask ourselves questions and not just take things as face value. Rounding up, uh, Chair, when the night, when, um, when the British... The, um, what's this, the crisis, um, what's the name of the crisis? States Research Center. I wonder what their position was when Mugabe was being given a knighthood by Auntie Liz, you know, not so long ago. What was your position on that? Because even at that time, there would have already been crises in Zimbabwe and human rights issues. But it seems to me that the West was not too concerned. And 1994 is not such a long time, you know, that you're able to give somebody a knighthood who had turned against Ndebele even earlier on. So some of us are not impressed by the role of the West or indeed Western institutions and chair. Just to say another thing. Yes, I am rounding up. Finally, yes. I, finally, Chair. We talk about human rights. Five million Africans have died in Congo DRC. Not 500, Chair. Not five. Five million. Where is the conscience of the so-called West? In Darfur, genocide is being committed on our people even as we speak. Where is the Western interest? And what is this uh, uh, hysterical you know, uprising against Zimbabwe? I'd like to submit, Chair, that there are deeper issues which members of the panel have not touched on. And lastly, can I just say, it takes the only white man on the panel to be honest and say, I'm referring to Patrick now, about the real nature of the media and not the Africans on the panel. We need to have a deeper discussion. <laughs> Google. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, so, so many questions. Um, I guess I'll first I'll start with, with that particular one. Yeah, I think uh, as Patrick said, uh, you know, Zimbabwe means so many things to so many people. Um, but as a Zimbabwean, I must say that uh, we have uh, our own very particular concerns, um, and and um, it is un I think unfortunate that uh, people have taken up. Uh, I think uh, things in Zimbabwe picked on certain things in order to, to perhaps uh, uh, make arguments about their own grievances about uh, imbalances in the global governance system and uh, inconsistencies. Uh, you know, I think many of, us, many of us accept that there, there really are serious weaknesses in uh, the international governance uh, institutions such as the United Nations um, and so on. Um, but that doesn't uh, mean that one should then look away from what is going on in Zimbabwe and try and help Zimbabweans to resolve their crisis because it is indeed Zimbabweans who have, who have uh, been uh, in those institutions saying we need help, we need to try and resolve uh, the, these questions, indeed going to, to the African Union, uh, to the SADC and, and so on. Um, you know, the, the question of, of the media and so on, I, you know, I really I'm not inclined to address it right now because I think there are more important uh, issues to, to address. But um, the, this question of uh, the government of national unity and, and uh, the legitimacy question, I think, which many people have been talking about, I think the first uh, point of, at, at which legitimacy must be addressed is, is this process. 
um, will this process be seen as a legitimate uh, dialogue or really something uh, which is an excuse for, for impunity? And um, I, I think that if all three sides are agreed, and, and uh, it, it will be clear, the indications will be there. If uh, Morgan Tsangra in particular signs up to this because he, he is the person who's still saying um, there is this requirement, I'm not happy with the mediator, and unless we resolve that question, we're, we're not really moving on. If he, he signs up to the memorandum of, uh, of understanding, they will publish whatever they agree to, and, and indeed they, they agree to, to act in such a way as to show their commitment to this uh, understanding. And uh, they, they have two weeks. Everybody really will be looking at this to see whether this is a serious process for dialogue or, or something else. Of course, we all know, or those who have been following the situation know that uh, uh, since 2002, President Tawambeki has been trying to mediate in some way or another. It's, it's since March 29 last year that he has been acting on behalf of, of SADC. And the main problem seems to have been always that uh, they have come to some agreement, some concessions have been made in these dialogue processes. But uh, when it comes to the moment of, of implementation, uh, it is often ZANU-PF and, and uh, Robert Mugabe who, who really undermine uh, the agreements. So what happened, and, and, and uh, Martin Rupier uh, did refer to this, that uh, last year they had agreed um, to a process to, to really uh, reform or redraft the Mugabe's constitution, so you had a constitution that would be acceptable to most people and then uh, you know, prepare the way for a credible ele election. Um, but uh, you know, Mugabe and ZANU-PF made the calculation uh, in January that the, the MDC was weak and that they could win an election uh, without having to, to introduce this new constitution because of course, if there was a new constitution, their own position would be weakened. And so it was Mugabe who then made this announcement. It wasn't arbitrary, it was, it was a very clear calculation that uh, ZANU-PF was, was stronger and they would win. Of course, uh, he miscalculated because uh, it turned out ZANU-PF was, was weaker. Uh, Makoni left ZANU-PF and in many ways opened up the way for the MDC in the sense that uh, those who, who were not so sure they wanted to go out and vote for the MDC because it was divided then decided that uh, you know, they were not going to have another uh, ZANU-PF uh, uh, or, or, or a new ZANU-PF and uh, they went out and, and, and voted and of course uh, people within ZANU-PF were divided between Mugabe and, and Makoni, and I think this is where uh, Mugabe lost lots of votes. Having said that, I think it's important to, to uh, recognize that ZANU-PF still has a lot of support in Zimbabwe, and this is one of the things that um, people <coughs> overlook. I think now it, has, it is the minority party, but it's still a very sizable minority, and uh, you, you know, ZANU-PF cannot be wished away, and I think this is, is the problem, I think, with the with, uh, um, this question of, yes, the, you know, Morgan Tsangarai did uh, win that, that election and, and, and so on. And it, it would be principled in, in a, a democratic uh, situation to say, uh, yes, you know, he, he should uh, get to form the government. But it's quite clear that uh, ZANU-PF will do anything to ensure that uh, that does not happen. And I think th this is the context of the negotiations. It's, it's uh, for lack of a better alternative. They've seen that elections do not work. And this is where the question of what does that GNU actually do, and it's not it's not it's not quite clear. Um, in, in in their own memorandum, they don't talk of a government of national unity; they talk of an inclusive government. Um, but I think GNU is what is, is often used, and of course, some people say coalition, whatever it is. People are talking about what this means. The one version is um, let's just form a government between all these you know people. Uh, maybe Mugabe is, is the head of that government, maybe Tsangarai is the prime minister, a sort of Kenya-style uh, government.
government and they govern for the full five-year term. The arguments for that, they say, you know, I can see you're shaking your head, but I'll explain what the arguments are. They say that, uh, look, we've seen that this election thing work, does not work. For as long as you have elections ahead, Zanu PF will not stop with the violence. They will continue because that's their way of winning elections. So uh, we, we've been through these elections, and if we have uh, elections ahead um, in, in two years' time, um, you know, this will not work. So let's just, uh, let's just form a government that will, will govern for the full five-year term, as long as we can have a government that everybody accepts, you know, a legitimate government, and this would be the, the tough one for them to resolve. The other version is uh, looking at the South African style of transition, which is, you know, let's have a, a, a transitional arrangement, which is uh, for a limited uh, period with a limited mandate, a government that will be oversee a new constitution, uh, that will think about reconciliation and, and justice and all those kind of things, and um, prepare, principally prepare the way for a democratic election. So in two years' time, you have another election. So that's another version. And all these versions are modeled on, on what has happened in other countries. So uh, Kenya and South Africa are, are the examples that everybody's looking at the, at the moment. And I think that the people who, who are working on this, the Zimbabweans and, and everybody else, are really the people who, who know what kind of solution will work for, for Zimbabwe. So those models are very helpful from outside of Zimbabwe, but I, I think they will have to find something that works uh, in particular uh, for Zimbabwe because there are difficulties with, with, the, with the different arrangements. As Patrick has said, the characters are different as well. Uh, in Kenya and, and in, in, uh, in, in South Africa, you had very different people involved. Um, South Africa's role, uh, I think one thing that is difficult for Morgan Tsvangirai is his leverage at the moment is his support from the international community. And it's, you know, who knows how long the interest in the situation will last. But what we do know is that at the moment there is a great deal of interest. And they have given themselves a fairly short time frame. Uh, in terms of, of what is going on in SADC, I think things will get worse for Morgan Tsvangirai and uh, that, that side of the MDC and in fact the, the, the entire MDC in this, if they object to, to but he, because he particularly <coughs> objects to, to Tabombeki being the, the sole mediator. Uh, South Africa in two weeks' time takes over the chair of the SADC. So he won't even have a sympathetic chair in SADC to, to talk to. And the, in, in the political organ, the, the troika of the, um, the SADC, uh, Swaziland, or I think Lesotho, is going to be chair of that as well. And, and those are countries that really which would yield to the influence of South Africa. So even there, uh, things I think will be particularly difficult for, for Morgan Tsvangirai. In terms of what the international community can, can do, I think the African Union moment has passed for now. They met and they said, we'll support the SADC process. Of course, we'll see what Mr. Ping says when he meets with Tabo Mbeki, but it will probably be something uh, supportive of him. Um, the United Nations uh, moment has also passed. Um, you know, they, they, they met, they couldn't pass sanctions. So unless something changes, unless this dialogue process collapses, I don't think we'll see any additional measures from any of those other institutions. Um, what, what is the... I, I've forgotten the... the, the you the come back. Yeah. I can That's come back to that, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mark. Okay, thanks, James. I'll pick up on two. One of the difficulties in terms of the Zimbabwean crisis is how sophisticated it has become. There are several layers to it, and I want to respond to my sister, in which you find you know, internal security issues, political issues, regional, international. 
they intersect and they manifest themselves on the Zimbabwean situation. And so clearly, for, for, for some of us, in the last election, there was simply no reason to kill one another. If, if you meet you know, someone from a village, they have their house burned. And for 60 years, they've been living in that village. There is no rationale to explain that. But what has tended to happen is the debate in the international uh, community, especially Pan-African, is that you, you, you then collapse and put people in particular boxes to say, if you don't agree with this, maybe you must be from the opposition. So, so you know, in terms of how that is uh, panned out, uh, you know, for once, I think we have to be critical, even amongst ourselves. And this is what SADC now is beginning to do. Not necessarily that they support the opposition. And part of the loss of uh, mass political support uh, by ZAN and then the you know, increased support for MDC is not necessarily MDC is doing anything right or producing policies. It is simply what the government itself is doing. So the argument is how the state or the ruling party can begin to articulate and connect with the interests of the people. And, and there's been a, you know, a gradual shift. If, as a researcher, you just sit down and look at the trend, the voting trend, you know, since 2000 to the present. 2000, the government got into power with five seats and then adopted an exclusionary winner takes all, which is, you know, okay under the Westminster system, etc. So the, the, the nature of the crisis, which we can debate, you know, in other fora here, of course, in 10 minutes, our role was to look at, you know, how the military, you know, uh, is going to, uh, or is, is, is in the crisis. So in terms of understanding the nature, the dynamic on two uh, dimensions, in South Africa, there's differences in terms of how the Zimbabwean situation is making an impact. Mbeki has a, you know, a different uh, constituency behind him. March 2009, Becky may not be on the scene, and we think the Zimbabwean situation will continue. Beyond 2009, it may well be Zuma and the other you know, faction of the ANC, or SATU, SSCP, they are you know, writing on the back. So the situation is really, really sophisticated. If you talk about land reform, look at Namibia. 1% of Namibia is really fertile land. They took a decision as a liberation movement not to use land reform as the engine for development. And they've continued to undertake that policy income. South Africans, after 15 years in power, they've taken 10%. Okay? I think it was only last year that they first appropriated and designated a particular piece of land. But South Africa is the only country in that region that is a welfare system. You drive around South Africa, every 60-year-old gets 800 rands or you know, plus or minus 100 US dollars per month. So what do they do? They buy their own you know, articles, maize, millimil, and whatever. And they don't produce from subsistence. So they don't work the land. These are different typologies. And I've driven around Southern Africa, and you are just surprised as to how the South Africans read their relationship with land is so different to just across the border in Limpopo or even in Swaziland. And so the nature of the crisis and the, the, the dynamics you know, that you know, inform us there are so sophisticated and different. So we need to be you know, quite critical. The last point is to look at uh, whether or not the military have acquired assets, have their own interests. Now, my argument is this. 
You cannot separate the military in Zimbabwe from the political elite. You have securocrats, people elected, who think and behave like military. And so you have no oversight because they are engaging in what I call very poorly conceived series of military operations. Operation Murabachina, Operation Maguta, Operation Building This Building, Operation you know, Working the Land. And in terms, the, the, that series of operations is not connected to a national vision. And there's no exit strategy. If you visit one of the cities, you may find a soldier simply still running around with a wheelbarrow. He's still carrying out Operation Rebuild after Murabachina. And so you, you have now civilians that think the military option is the answer. It is not. You need to link the military option to some grand vision for stability and development of Zimbabwe. And it's not there. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd just like to take up Ming on, on that question. I remember there was a very bizarre meeting about a decade or so ago in Washington. Chester Crocker, the uh, Reagan's uh, uh, African uh, supremo, African policy supremo, uh, convened this meeting to discuss the Zimbabwe crisis, which was then sort of brewing up. And he said, well, we really got to give uh, Mugabe a soft landing, because after all, he's been looking after Haile Mengistu for uh, the past decade for us. And he did us a real favor in Ethiopia. Uh, and I was, for some reason, about a week after, I was found myself in Harare. I read the Herald, and the Herald headline was, uh, CIA plot to overthrow Mugabe um, uh, in, held in secret meeting in Washington. Um, actually, there were a couple of guys from the Zimbabwean embassy. I guess that's where they got the story from. Um, but it, 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 um, So I suppose the best of uh, intentions, uh, that's where they lead you. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of people would have, 10 years ago, have said that's exactly what should be done. Um, I think it's, it's harder now, the soft landing option. But I, I, and I think it does come back to how we define this, this next process in the transition. Because if it is a transition uh, and it has a job of work to do, I don't really think the MDC is going to be able to say to Sydney Sekonrai, you're no longer Minister of Defence. I don't think they're going to be able to say to Chiwenga, you're no longer Defence Chief, or uh, Sibanda, you're no longer Army Chief. Of course, a lot of people probably prefer Sibanda to take over. And there are all sorts of things. But I think you're pretty stuck uh, with what you've got in that I mean, you know, just isn't the leverage, and there's certainly no external leverage on those things. So I think it's just a, a fact of life uh, that the military there, I mean, I, I just tell you, you know, the military have clearly been sucked in, as you say, to the political process, but also say uh, Congo was raised. I spent quite a bit of time in the Congo um, working with the UN, uh, and I had the uh, honor of privilege of traveling with all sorts of soldiers in the Congo, uh, Rwandese soldiers, Ugandan soldiers, Congolese soldiers, Burundian soldiers, uh, various my my militias and so on. I said the only soldiers I, I, I used to sort of have a decent night's kip in their company were the Zimbabwean soldiers uh, because they were by far the most professional and uh, and they they knew exactly what they were doing and uh, you know if you were attacked they'd organise. So I, I'm I I don't think the military you know I mean it's beyond uh, redemption. I think I, I think there are ways. I mean I think you know ideally there could be. Uh, a restructuring, and I think again, that's the sort of thing that a right, the right sort of reconstruction package could come in, and that could be an incentive to sort of reshuffle the military. But I think it has to be done rather skillfully. So I'm saying that, yeah, you know, you may need a soft landing if it can be wrapped up, and then you just edge the really hard guys out 
But you know, no one's going to chase these guys out. I mean, you know, I don't think we should have illusions about that. I mean, that's unless something really, really changes, and I don't don't see that. Um, civil society. Um, yeah, I mean, what I was trying to say there was that I, this the, the negotiations at the moment do seem to be the sort of uh, elite pact idea where um, the, the the bosses of various political formations get get together in a smoke-filled room or a, uh, some sort of room uh, and, and hammer it out, and then they, they, they tell the plebs, this is what we sorted out for you, and it's all right now. And I think that would be really be a disaster. And uh, I think um, that's where civil society could really turn up. I mean, put pressure on the negotiations, put demands to the negotiations, also put pressure and, and get it out on the international and, and the SADC agenda. Uh, and you know that I mean you know you have seen this this change in institutions in Africa. There is a, there's there's an African Parliament sitting in, in in South Africa, and that Parliament produced well the members of that Parliament produced an incredibly good report on the elections in Zimbabwe, both in uh, March 29 uh, end of March and the end of June. Uh, they've got a good reputation. They're willing to talk and they're willing to mobilise on your uh, on civil society's behalf. So I think there are all sorts of ways of doing that, so I think better, but I think it's very important they should do it. Just on the, on the issue of the, uh, the economic crisis, what's behind it, um, we, we just did a piece in my paper today about um, what Zimbabwe's called, Zimbabwe's called externalization, and the amount of dollars that are going out of Zimbabwe currently uh, you know, defies belief. Uh, money is being shipped, I mean, I'm a great believer in capital flight as a major contributor to underdevelopment and economic crises, and the, the pace of capital flight in Zimbabwe has uh, it's got exponentially higher as the crisis has gone on. Uh, all sorts of people are in there making deals. Yes, uh, Brit the Brits are, yeah, Hoogstraten uh, and his buddies, uh, Mr. Ed Ferdman's, the cricketer is there. Everyone is trying to get assets on the cheap and they get the money out, that's a, that's a contribution. But they can only do it because the regime is compliant with that sort of behavior. And I have to say, the regime is encouraging it and in cahoots with that sort of behavior. Uh, the ministers in that regime have behaved disgracefully. The, the central bank governor is part of this, uh, ex he, he has a set of foreign exchange regulations, which he himself breaks, let alone his business buddies. So it really, the, the destruction of the Zimbabwean economy is very much a joint venture. And there are some guilty parties here. But there are also some guilty parties in, sitting in state house and sitting in the parliament in, in Zimbabwe. And it's an absolute tragedy what's going on. And I don't know how they're going to get that money back, which is, again, why I don't think there's been nearly enough attention on the effects of this sort of economic drain on Zimbabwe and how, even if there was a deal in two weeks, then what happens? How do people then start living again and reviving the economy? And no one really seems to be doing the, 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 the thinking on that. Thank you, Patrick. Let me go back to the floor now for another round of questions. Gabby? Thank you. I'm Gabby Hesselbahn. Of the, I work at the Crisis States Research Center, but not on Zimbabwe, on countries that are much worse off than Zimbabwe, like the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I don't want to see Zimbabwe going down that way. And this is why I raise a question to your inside knowledge. I do acknowledge and I do understand how important procedures are, how important uh, negotiations and a certain amount of legitimacy are. 
but with the background knowledge, for example, of the DRC, there has been a traditional, uh, I'm sorry, transitional government um, from 2002 to 2006, and people just didn't talk to each other. This government didn't accomplish anything it was supposed to accomplish, and the entire international community couldn't do much about that. So I would like to know from you, with your, with your particular inside knowledge, what is a transitional government in Zimbabwe supposed to do? What is going to happen to the question of land rights? What is going to happen to some of the biggest economic problems? What is going to happen to property rights? I'm sorry, it might be a problem of the media over here, but I have no clue what the MDC, for example, is saying on these topics. I don't know. So what would be the way ahead? Uh, what is the government of unity or of reconciliation supposed to do? Um, this is a question for, sorry, my name is Laureen, I'm also a Zimbabwean, and this is a question that's directed to the panel and also directed to the MDC member um, who's representing the MDC. Um, do you feel skeptical about a government of national unity? Um, one remembers what happened to Joshua Nkomo when he went into a similar arrangement with ZANU-PF and that effectively killed off his party. Thank you. Hello, yes, I'm a student at uh, Harvard University, and my father served as uh, the Minister of Lands in Zimbabwe during the 1980s, and ha helped uh, draft the actual Lancaster House Agreement, which gave us independence. And essentially, back then, he oversaw the process which was done under a willing buyer and willing seller system, and clearly it was much more organized than it is now. However, unbeknown to a lot of people, it was Tony Blair's government who when they came into power actually reneged on the Lancaster House Agreement. They said we're no longer going to pay compensation because it's a conservative issue, it's Margaret Thatcher's times. And so the president of our country naturally thought he's not going to make Zimbabwean taxpayers pay for land which is essentially being given back to them. So this moves on to my question that it's clear that one of the main causes um, for the land redistribution failure in the last seven to eight years has been the fact that there's been a series of sanctions imposed on the country by the IMF, the World Bank, companies being um, blocked from actually doing trade within Zimbabwe, and petroleum and all sorts of things being turned back at various borders. So my question to you is, given the fact that sanctions are such an important part of our crisis, how can they be lifted under any form of government of national unity if Mugabe and ZANU-PF play a key part of that and they will not let any land actually be given back, which is what the MDC are saying through various land commissions might actually happen over a prolonged period of time. So what's the likelihood of sanctions being lifted? My name is Sarah and I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, I was wondering because in the popular news media, um, I have the impression that the situation is always um, sort of portrayed as one of Mugabe versus everybody else. 
And given the situation in Kenya that we've recently seen, where it turned out that there was quite a lot of ethnic manipulation going on behind the scenes, and uh, again with Dr. Putzel's suggestion at the beginning that we shouldn't let this become a Shona versus Ndebele issue, I was wondering to what extent uh, the panel feels that this is either in some way um, caused by underlying ethnic tensions or the, mani the manipulation of these, or if um, it's sort of if these um, tensions are sort of resulting from the crisis as they, again, kind of did in Kenya. Uh, so if you could engage with that, that would be really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Richard, did you want to say? Yeah. Later, okay. One more. You can uh, come back. Yeah. Let's have a comment from you. Thank you. I do have a few uh, comments to make about some of the issues that have been raised here, but mostly in relation to the MDC's policy on, on land. Before I address that, I do agree with uh, the earlier speaker who said that Mugabe and uh, Mandela represent different things. I, 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 I agree, Mandela is a, is a world popular African brand that uh, Africans like myself are very proud of and we shouldn't be quick to give it to the West. The Mugabe, on the other hand, represent a complete embarrassment of Africa and where Africa should, should go. The, the earlier speaker also said, uh, addressed the issue of uh, various formations of government of national unity, coalition government, or some sort of an arrangement between uh, the MDC and, and ZANPF uh, going forward. But as I said earlier, we do not think that, uh, th that is the way to go. The problem in Zimbabwe is a, a, a serious problem of lack of uh, legitimacy. Uh, once you go into an agreement with an tarnished uh, party like uh, ZANPF, you are not going to establish any legitimacy. And as such, you won't have we won't make any, any progress going forward. The, it was also said that uh, I, I get the feeling that uh, Morgan Shangri is being blamed for not uh, going into uh, agreement uh, or signing these uh, memorandums of uh, understanding with ZANPF. And quite correctly, uh, the MDC has learned the hard way uh, that we agree uh, a certain position with Mugabe today and he takes an arbitrary decision the following day. He has proved himself to be a very unreliable uh, negotiating partner, and the, if he has undermined every uh, negotiation and agreements uh, that were made between him and others who are connected with the Zimbabwean political process in the past, uh, what has changed now, and why should we all of a sudden start believing him? The, Morgan Shangri's leverage, I, I beg to disagree, is not with the international community. It is with the people of Zimbabwe who support him. The fact that Mbeki is uh, going to be chair of SADC, in my view, doesn't change anything. Mbeki has been appointed to, uh, <coughs> to oversee the end of the crisis in Zimbabwe and to be an arbitrator or mediator, whatever you want to call him, 
but he is clearly unfit to play that role because he is one-sided in the uh, in the whole process. As such, the MDC is now insisting that he be replaced by uh, a credible and able and competent African mediator, which is why uh, there won't be any movement going forward if he is going to be the sole mediator. However, the most important thing, uh, question that I seek to speak to is the idea that uh, some people don't seem to understand uh, that the MDC does have a position uh, on the land and seem to think that Robert Mugabe is genuine about uh, the way he's going up on about the land, pro uh, land process. Uh, the earlier speaker who is related to someone who drafted the uh, Langes House Conference uh, misrepresented the MDC position by suggesting somehow that the MDC will in some sort of uh, mad agreement give back the, the land to the white, the white owners. Uh, for the avoidance of doubt, Mugabe never, uh, never wanted to engage in any land reform of any kind unless sorry, until he lost an election in, in, in February 2000. That is when he started uh, raiding uh, white-owned farms. And after he, he engaged in that barbaric process, he gave the land to army generals, police chiefs, and people who couldn't farm and who, what they, who basically ran their farms uh, by mobile phone or via the internet sitting in their offices in Harare. The MDC, there is someone who said the MD, they have not been able to see the MDC uh, land reform program. And I do sympathize with that because if you read the MDC's policies, uh, there is five policies, there are five main policies. Number one is constitutional reform. Number two is economic stability. Number three is agrarian reform. So if you were looking for land reform, you would not have seen it. Now, under that, under that, uh, in that program, in the in MDC's latest uh, policy, with which the, the manifesto, with uh, 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 sorry, <coughs> in the MDC manifesto for this round of elections, it is some 300 pages long. About 90 pages of that explain our agrarian reform. People in Zimbabwe understand that the MDC will distribute the land in a way that is designed to bring, up, bring about economic growth rather than to ensure political patronage. And it's not surprising that the MDC has been winning uh, elections in Zimbabwe since 2002. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Okay, if we, if we keep our responses rather brief, we can hear once more from the audience uh, before we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, um, what would the GFU do? Um, I, I think that is you know, something that is, everybody is, is debating, including the, the people who you know, are the principals in, in the negotiations. That's not appear from the two uh, MDC uh, formations. There really uh, isn't any agreement at this point. Um, you know, just to, to address this, this point um, about whether to negotiate or, or not with, with, with ZANU-PF, I think 
it's really difficult to, to continue to argue that um, you know, the MDC is not uh, going to negotiate with ZANU-PF because the tainted party and so on, when in fact they are in a process uh, right now trying to, 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 to agree to, to some memorandum of understanding. And indeed, uh, the African Union resolution recognizes that these parties are committed to this. And in their own preamble, they say the same thing, that they're committed to, to dialogue. I think the question is what will come out of that dialogue, but uh, they certainly are engaged in a process, and that process hasn't collapsed yet. They're waiting tomorrow for, for um, further discussions uh, about the African Union's uh, position. And I think this has been one of the problems that um, the MDC sometimes uh, really sends the mixed messages about what is, it, what is going on. So one day they will say that, uh, you know, we're not negotiating at all, uh, you know, release all political prisoners and so on and so on, and uh, the next day you find that they have actually be, been meeting and engaged in, 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 um, in uh, negotiations. That, I think, though, is understandable because the situation is very fluid and, and there are pressures that are being applied. And I think that uh, the MDC uh, really uh, has, has little choice at this point but to engage in some kind of negotiation simply because Morgan Tsangara has already said that uh, you know, they don't want a, a military solution to, to this uh, crisis, certainly not for the time being. You know? And uh, it's clear that elections uh, haven't worked so far. And in any case, in order to, to, to now, Mugabe won the last election, at least he announced himself uh, as winner. So and, or you still have to talk your way to another election if the election is indeed uh, the, the, the solution. So something is definitely happening. There are talks happening. The question of, of whether they, if this is going to be a zarpification uh, of the MDC is a real one. This is what they, they're contending with right now. Everybody is talking about that, civil society actors. People accept that uh, you must negotiate with, with the Mugabe because they've just demonstrated that they, they are willing to kill in order to stay in power. So the option really is uh, to, 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 or at least the, 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 what, what appears to be the, the only way forward at the moment is to, to try and talk to them. Uh, there are many parallels with Joshua Ngomo, even the, the, you know, the sort of five months, uh, Joshua Ngomo spent five months in self-imposed exile, uh, alleging that uh, you know, Mugabe was trying to kill him. You know, there were people around him who were arrested, charged with treason and so on. And indeed, many of the people who are in the job now were people who, who masterminded the campaign against Gomo, uh, Emerson Nangagwa and so on. So uh, people do believe that you know, they're simply using the same strategy. And, and Joshua Ngomo had to capitulate at the, at the end of it all. Of course, Joshua Ngomo didn't have uh, anywhere near the kind of support that Morgan Tsvangarai has. Indeed, Morgan Tsvangarai has the majority support in the country at the moment, but the, the problem for him is uh, you know, what can he do with that support? The reality is that the violence continues. Uh, as, as you said, the MDC cannot function as a political party, and indeed their structures continue to be decimated. So how do you end that? Um, the question of, of uh, you, you know, sanctions, I'm not sure what sanctions uh, you know, you're referring to. It's really difficult to talk about sanctions without identifying the measures that you're talking about. Um, when it comes to the travel bans and so on, uh, presumably if, if, um, if uh, there was some agreement between the parties, there would be no reason to continue with the, the travel bans because there would have been a settlement in Zimbabwe and the rest of the world would recognize that. Uh, it's quite clear that the SADC and the AU will, will uh, as they say, underwrite the implementation of whatever agreement is reached between the parties. 
So I think the, the rest of the world would follow. Indeed, uh, when you talk to European U uh, diplomats, they, they acknowledge that their sanctions don't work because they're the only ones who are doing these sanctions. And they say, well, it, it, it certainly is of symbolic importance to show that we disapprove, but we know that uh, this doesn't work. And they also indicate that the problem in the United Nations is that nothing will move unless it has the whole support of the Africa group. Uh, and indeed, we, we, we saw this uh, last week. They don't expect to be able to take measures until such a time as Africa says, uh, you know, we agree, take additional measures. Uh, so again, you go back to the SADC process because this is the one that the, the, the AU is supporting at, at the moment. The balance of payment support, I'm not sure that uh, the IMF World Bank uh, balance of payment uh, problem, I'm not sure that those are sanctions. I think that's just conditionality. Um, uh, you know, this is, this, this is my understanding of it. I think that's just uh, conditionality, and perhaps people who, who are experts in this can, can comment about that. Um, the question of ethnic uh, dimensions, there are ethnic dimensions in, 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 in the, the crisis in Zimbabwe. There's no doubt about it. One of the things which is a problem for ZANU-PF right now is uh, the, 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 um, you, the, um, Morgan Tsangarai uh, has, has said various things about uh, the question of justice. When he went on campaign, he said he was going to deliver justice for the people of Matabili land who, who suffered from um, the consequences of the Kukura Hundi uh, campaign. Um, but recently he's been saying, and his officials have been saying, they have no interest in pursuing Mugabe. Um, they would like him to, to retire. They just need to, if only things would move forward. He hasn't quite said what he will do with the rest of the people um, in, in uh, the jock and so on. And the question, um, it, it's a real issue about uh, Matville, and, and there is a tribal dimension to that because most of the people who were victims of the Kukura Wundi uh, campaign were in Matville and then Wendebele. Um, so I think Mugawa certainly, and, and, and many people in Zanu certainly understand that uh, these things get, cannot uh, go away, which is why they don't uh, trust those assurances about am amnesty, because they know that uh, Matabuliland hasn't gone away as an issue, and it's uh, unlikely, just as unlikely, that uh, the recent violations will be overlooked. And this is a real question that they, they will have to, to resolve. Also within the MDC, the two MDCs, um, split and uh, initially it was it was really uh, uh, about matters of, of principle, but uh, the, the, the split did take on a, a very sort of uh, tribal dimension, so to speak. The small MDC has most of its support from Matabuliland, and that's been clear from from uh, uh, the election results recently. Um, and and so there are these tensions, which is why you, you and, and none of these constituencies will, will will go away. And indeed, this is why Morgan Tsangarai campaigned in the way that he did in Matabuliland. He talked about. Uh, Kukura Hundi because he, he, he knew this was a, an issue related to, to that would get in the Matabuliland vote. None of these issues will go away and you need to include all those uh, constituencies. Um, and uh, I think I'll stop there so I can allow other people to, to carry on. Uh, I think when you do analysis in searching for a way forward, you will need to get your facts right in my book. So the first is to recognize the international dimension in the Zimbabwe crisis. You know the land issue. The important September 98 conference, as we neared the elections, the British government put on the table 12 million pounds as land reform support if ZANU-PF won the elections, and 36 million pounds if MDC won the elections. So you could see clearly which party is it that they were you know, rooting for. 
you know, as we could. And then the war broke out in 1999 in the DRC Congo. Some of our soldiers then went to the Congo. It was 1999, September. So I'm moving forward, yeah. But already, you know, the, the September was 98, the elections were 2000. MDC was formed in 99. I'm saying the, the land conference in 98 clearly articulated the issues that uh, uh, you know, there was a need to undertake root and branch land reform. And then by September of 99, the MDC was formed. There was a clear uh, interest to find another government other than San Pierre okay, by 2000. And then the war had broken out. Let me just respond and finish. So this was the you know sequencing in terms of you know we have a, a September ninety eight conference which UNDP held and we're supposed to go back with research, with recommendations, etc. In nineteen ninety nine a number of things happened. July there was a war in the Congo, September MDC was formed. By two thousand we were going into elections and there was a referendum, you know, towards that uh, end of the year. Now, in terms of the land reform distribution inside Zimbabwe, we also need to recognize there's been a series of uh, a commission of inquiries, the Buka Commission of Inquiry, Utete, uh, you know, Musika, that found a number of irregularities, okay? That has not been addressed. So even when you are facing where you think there's a problem outside, I think it's important also to recognize that there are limitations within the system. So there were a number of commissions that found irregularities which have not been addressed. And I think it's important we you know, take a look. The last point is to also recognize that the crisis in Zimbabwe is also about political succession within Zanopia. Underlying this whole crisis is the whole question as to the political succession within the ruling party. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, yeah, just can say, I, I, on this issue of Lancaster House, it is really in interesting. I mean, uh, all sorts of uh, folk tales have built up about those sort of la last negotiations. There's this is idea that there was some sort of uh, two billion dollar codicil uh, to the agreement uh, that uh, Mugabe and Como wanted to uh, to have added, written into the agreement, and then Tiny Roland came in and uh, took. Uh, Joshua out for a drink, and uh, he then decided it wasn't such a good idea. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it'd be great to get a history from someone who was actually there and prepared to tell the truth about it. But I think what you can say is that uh, what, if you compare what Kenyatta got out of the British to what Mugabe got out of the British, Kenyatta was a lot sharper and got his got his money very quickly and did land reform very quickly and effectively. So what Kenya's left with is the problem of how to divide it up among. Um, African Kenyans, and there's not the, the colonial hangover that uh, Zimbabwe has been left with. But, um, but I, th I think there's still, um, but I, I, I think there's st still, still quite a fair bit of myth making on, on the on the sanctions issues. I understand it. it it's the uh, the U.S. have passed a law which says that the U.S. will not support any uh, payments from the IMF or World Bank in terms of budget balance of payments support to Zimbabwe, uh, and that's an act of clear, uh, a, a political act, obviously. Um, the problem with that is that given the way the IMF and the World Bank work and, and the demands they make, there was no question 
uh, of without, with or without a U.S. Uh, provision like that, and no question of them giving a penny to uh, Mugabe's government, simply because they don't agree with the, the policy. They don't agree with the land reform. They don't agree with um, e the economic policy. They wouldn't agree with Gideon Gono's uh, strange notion of managing the currencies and anything else. So it is a bit academic. You know, what I'm saying is that those institutions wouldn't give Zimbabwe a penny without, with or without. So the sanctions thing is a bit, a bit moot. Uh, in fact, the African Development Bank does actually still give, uh, I think, sort of medium-term development stuff. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, I, I mean, there is, I think, slight warning on sanctions that I think last week the U.S. government decided that Nelson Mandela was no longer a terrorist. Um, so, I, I think there is a danger that um, you know, once you impose these sanctions, they just go on and on and on. I mean, I think it's, I think, some states in America are still deciding whether or not they should prohibit investment into South Africa. So I, I, I think, in a sense, sanctions are not the central issue now. Okay, thank you. I can only take a couple of more uh, very brief interventions and then maybe a final word or two. Um, yeah, and I know that Martin has to leave sharply, but we also have to wrap up. So I'm going to take one intervention here. Very forthrightly raising their hand, but brief, please. Hello, uh, my name is Alexander Tatenta. Um, a master's student of international law, University of Glasgow. Um, yes, I, I just want to comment very quickly on the comment made of the, what, what I've been hearing from uh, Google to Moyo. Um, she seems to be giving um, so much credence to the African Union, an organization which, as we understand it, doesn't have a coherent uh, policy to deal with crisis in Africa, or a coherent policy, economic policy, as it were. And if we, even if we were to look at the UN Charter, it, it schizophrenically has um, a part that, that actually excludes um, states from intervening in international affairs of other states. As a result, I think you know, we can carry on talking about yeah. uh, the role of African Union and without actually coming up with a, a solution of what should be done. However, if we go back to the issue of land reform, I think that is really the crux of the matter in, in, in Zimbabwe, i.e. the idea that the Britain went back on its uh, agreement, the Lancaster Agreement, and Tony Blair's government decided that it was not his government's responsibility to keep uh, okay. a promise made by a previous uh, government. In other words, they're saying that there is one set of rules for um, dealing with other countries, whereas when it comes to African countries, there's another set of rules. What we're saying is, until the day that African uh, countries actually uh, set their agenda in the international community, and their own agenda, what they want for their citizens. When we're going to come back again talking about Niger Delta, talking about Sudan and Darfur forever without having a solution. Thank you. Yep. And, and, and that's what we're, we're trying to say. Can I, Richard? I'm Richard Dowden, director of the Royal African Society. Um, Mugabe is certainly not al alone in what he's done in. Uh, to the electoral process in Zimbabwe. It seems to me, looking back, Ethiopia, where the uh, that were disputed election, the, the losers were shot down in the street and then locked up. Uh, Nigeria, whose president is here at the moment, I don't think he was elected uh, last year. Uh, that, that was one of the most uh, dodgy elections I've ever, I've ever witnessed. I think the Ugandan election left the country so bitterly divided, it'll take a long time to put back together again. We've seen what happened in Kenya. Um, and uh, 
Congo, the winner won, and the loser probably declared war on the loser, and that period of peace in Congo came sharply to an end. And I, you just kind of feel that if it had been uh, Kabila who had lost, and uh, uh, he would now be facing the International Criminal Court. Um, you just begin to wonder, after all of this, because the general view is that, ah, oh, well, multi-party democracy is in its uh, infancy in Africa, and, and it's this general sort of idea, oh, you know, it'll, it'll develop and it'll get better. It doesn't seem to me to be changing at all. And I just wonder whether it is time to rethink it, and that maybe it's the, and uh, certainly the, uh, the, um, with the, the Security Council resolution last week seems to mark the end of that post-Cold War uh, uh, power of the West in, in Africa. Uh, uh, that marks a sort of full stop, ending it. Um, it's a process, but I just wonder whether this whole multi-party, first-past-the-post, winner-takes-all democracy is actually going to work in Africa. Maybe it is time for Africa to think of other political systems. Thank you, Richard. Very brief, please, because we have to wrap up. Thank you. Um, just very quickly, and maybe Google, you'll be able to, to answer the question with regards to the actual agreement itself. Um, you know, you've said that it's underwritten by the African Union, but is there, you know, have we had any indication from ZANU-PF that there's a genuine desire to, to reach a political settlement and, and end, you know, the chaos and the madness? The second one is from a, as, as part of the diaspora here, and the Zimbabwean here, um, what, what, provision, is there any discussion about what role we can play in all of this um, from point okay. of view of skills and remittances of cash and that sort of thing? Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, I'm going to pass back. You, you, you each have one or two sentences and that's it. <laughs> I have to apologize. I have to leave in five minutes. So I will say my piece and then I'll wherever. The, the, uh, Alex, as an MA student, you must have hope for the African Union. The international security system created an opening in which the African Union from the OAU 1963, its major mandate was the liberation of Africa. Now it's progressing from 2000. It is the constitutive act and it is putting into place now the African security architecture, which is the Peace and Security Council, the Military Affairs Committee, the African Standby Force, and including a conflict resolution you know, mechanism. We have attempted since 1963, 1992 in Cairo to put this into place. But until the international security system created an opening, a space for the AU to play a role, there was no chance. So please, as an African, I want to urge you, begin to understand. Even Pan-African Parliament, they're still advisory the first five years, and then they'll become substantial. I don't Thank you. No, 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 no dialogue. That's a, it's simply that's a, fi that's a final word from Mark. <laughs> <laughs> One final word. Um, <laughs> I'll try. Um, forgive me if I sounded as though I was, uh, well, you're not staying for the answer, but um, uh, <laughs> uh, forgive me if I sounded as though I was, uh, you know, somehow, uh, you know, giving credence to, to any African Union uh, 
or to the African Union, as you said. Um, what I've tried to do is mostly to, to describe what is, is happening and, and the realities of, of the situation. Um, you know, the African Union, the United Nations are, in my view, highly flawed institutions. Um, and, uh, you know, as an activist, what I try and, and do and hope will happen is that these institutions will, will in fact be strengthened and that hope that they will be more consistent. As Richard has said, you know, you have elections all over the world that, that don't work, work uh, at all, that, that are not credible, but the responses that depend really on, on what the interests are and, uh, you know, who it is. And, and this has been the problem with, with Zimbabwe, and this is what Mugabe has been able to, to expose. Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Patrick, final word. Oh, we are, we just end up saying, well, on, on, on elections and democracy, I, 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 I do think that if you look at the, the picture today, awful as Kenya was in a way, awful as, as Zimbabwe has been uh, so far, I, I still think if you look at the picture now, 10 years ago, there is a sea change. And I think the most important thing is people on the ground are bothered to turn out for elections. They queue all day, they go to huge lengths. People are dying for the right to cast their vote for who they want to. And I think given that that, that is the core thing, and if, you know, unfortunately in this society we just take, take it for granted, that's why hardly so, many, so few of us actually bother to go out and vote. I think when people are fighting for their lives to vote, I, I, I think it has, it has taken